If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. In Hebrew, that's Yeshiahu, the Lord is salvation. Or, Yeshua is the Lord. We are in verse 2 today of Isaiah chapter 64. But let's review verse 1. Verse 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Will this happen? The answer is yes. When does it happen? In Revelation 19.11, at the end of the tribulation period. So it's talking about Messiah returning to establish the messianic kingdom on earth. But before he establishes that kingdom, we have the battle of Armageddon and the nations of the world that have terrorized Israel for millennia will all come to meet the Lord down in the valley of Jezreel, which means God will sow. So that's the context here of Isaiah 64. Why is the Lord talking about this? We're still in that section of Isaiah that started back in the 40s, the chapter's 40s, where God told Israel to bring all their idols and pour them into a big old pile and ask those idols to prophesy. And what did they say? Nothing. Ask them what happened yesterday and how it was going to turn out. And they said, nothing. So he said, how do you know that I am God? Because only I can tell you the end from the beginning. And from that point forward, he's told us about the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom, the Babylonian captivity, the southern kingdom, Messiah's coming, his death, burial, and resurrection of the Roman diaspora. And now he's taken us forward 2,000 years to the return of Israel to the land. Isaiah 63 is about the battle of Armageddon and God pouring out his wrath on Israel's enemies. And in 64, now we're starting to talk about the second coming and the events surrounding it. And in chapter 64, 65, and 66, we will thoroughly examine the second coming of the Lord, the establishment of the Messianic kingdom on earth, and the last battle that we call the second battle of Gog and Magog, and then the establishment of the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. And he's doing all that to say, now who's God? That pile of rubble over there that said nothing, or me who's told you exactly what's going to happen from now until eternity future. So we come to verse 2. When the Lord returns, it's not like the first coming. Keep your finger here and turn back to Isaiah 53, which describes his first coming. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the Zeroah Adonai, the arm of the Lord, been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. That's the way the Lord came the first time. He was in a state of humility and gentleness. He was the lamb. How many of you have played with a lamb? Not a very vicious animal, right? Very soft and cuddly and loving. When he returns, he does not return as the lamb. He returns as the lion. A lot less cuddly, a lot less friendly. He comes in vengeance and wrath. So as fire burns brushwood, back to 64 verse 2, as fire causes water to boil, what is fire picture in prophecy? Judgment. To make your name known to your adversaries. Who are the adversaries in verse 2? 
That's all the nations of the world that are coming to attack Jerusalem. Psalm 2 says they come why? To keep Messiah from returning to rule and reign. Does God shake at his chair in heaven going, oh no, I don't know if I can win? No. He laughs at them in derision, doesn't he? That's Psalm 2. Yeah. That the nations may tremble at your presence. Keep a finger here. Go to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. Verse 16. We may as well start in verse 15 because it tells us the time of the prophecy. In those days... Well, that's not very specific. In those days refers to the time from Messiah's first coming to his second. That's 2,000 years. But then it says, and at that time, what time? The tribulation period. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. What's this word for branch? It's a mock. Every time Messiah is referred to as the branch, it's a mock except one. That's in Isaiah 11 when he's referred to as the Netzer, as in Netzer Tov, which is where you get the word Nazareth. So he will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. So Messiah is coming. This tells us when he's coming. When he comes, let's go to Zechariah 14 and see how the nations of the world respond. Zechariah 14. Zechariah 13.9 refers to the seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 14 begins when the seven-year tribulation periods come to an end. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. That day of the Lord is that thousand-year period from the rapture and resurrection to the new heavens and the new earth. How can a thousand years be a day? Psalm 90, verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 8. A day is to the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, meaning Jerusalem is going to be in great trouble. What does the world want Jerusalem to be these days? Split, divided. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. How's that going to take place? How's that going to happen? What's United, non I mean United Nations going to do? They're going to try and force Israel to split it, aren't they? For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The house is rifled. The women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So what does the remnant do? They cry out for the Lord to return. What happens when they call out for the Lord to return? He comes, verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. That's Armageddon. That's Revelation 19.11. Messiah returns on the white horse with the armies of heaven. It says in verse 4, and in that day, what day? Day of the Lord, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where did Messiah ascend into heaven? Mount of Olives. What did the angels tell the apostles? He's coming back where you see him go. 
He returns to the Mount of Olives, faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. Do you think that's a nice gentle parting? Or is this what Isaiah 64.2 means? There's going to be earthquakes and the earth's going to tremble. Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Why does this have to happen? Yes, Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Emperor, put a Muslim graveyard in front of the eastern gate. Why did he do that? Because he read prophecy and said, Messiah is coming through that gate. I can fix that. I'll put a graveyard. And Messiah is an Orthodox Jew. He won't walk through a graveyard. Ha, I beat him. Yeah, right. Here goes half that graveyard north, half of it south. Messiah goes through in a nice clean valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half it toward the south, and it shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal, which is associated with the Day of Atonement ceremonies. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Who prophesied during the days of Uzziah, king of Judah? Isaiah did. So it's just a little hint to go back and read Isaiah's prophecy again. Verse 6, it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. That is, the sun won't give its light, the moon won't reflect it. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. The Jewish sages say that light is the light of salvation dawning upon Israel and the earth. They're right. Messiah comes. But the last sentence of verse 5 says, Who's going to come? Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. Just because we're here and because I really like the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Look at verse 12. And thus shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Now let's go back and look at Isaiah 64 2 again. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, what causes the body to burn away like that? But the fire of Messiah's coming. To make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. From the time Messiah returns and Armageddon is finished, all the nations of the earth will have an entirely different attitude toward God, won't they? Prove it. Let's go to Isaiah 2. You're exactly right, Daniel. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. Verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Have you all fixed your Bibles? It doesn't say the latter days. It's the end of days. The achritayamin, the end of days. In a Jewish published Bible, that's capitalized. That's what you and I would call the messianic kingdom. That the mountain of the Lord's house, what's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. So this is the messianic kingdom shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills. The mountains are the 
large kingdoms in the Gentile world, the hills, the small kingdoms. What is Revelation 19 called Messiah, but King of kings and Lord of lords. His kingdom is over the entire earth's kingdom society. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What is the house of the God of Jacob? That's the temple. So these are formerly Gentiles who've now become believers. They're going to flow up to the temple every year. And what are they going to learn when they get to the temple? The Torah was abolished, right? 2,000 years ago? Uh-uh. Look at verse 3. Friday Zion, Zion, prophetic Jerusalem, shall go forth the Torah. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Messiah will sit on the throne in the temple and teach what? Torah. Tell me Torah was abolished. It was not. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. In fact, when all the nations come up every year, they're going to keep one of the particular feasts in Jerusalem with the Messiah. Which one is that? Tabernacles. How do you know? Let's go to Zechariah 14, 16. You're absolutely correct. Zechariah 14, 16. Somebody out there should be saying, you didn't tell us to leave a finger there. Yeah, sorry, I forgot. Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations, those are Gentiles, before they became believers, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year, which means every year without fail, to worship the king. Who's that? That's our Messiah Yeshua. That's the Lord. The Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaot. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What's another name for the Feast of Tabernacles? Feast of all nations. From the time of the Exodus, Israel was required to sacrifice how many bulls at Tabernacles? Seventy. How many nations in the world? Seventy. So they sacrificed one bull for each of the seventy nations. Whether the Gentiles knew it or not, there were sacrifices going on in the tabernacle, later the temple, on their behalf. It doesn't say that's the only one, but it says that they will come for that one. If they're smart, they'll come for all of them. <laughs> We looked at Isaiah 2. Is there any other prophecy that reads like Isaiah 2? Micah 4. Since we're in Zechariah, let's go to Micah because they're very close together. Micah chapter 4. Most people know Micah for chapter 5, which is about the birth of Messiah at Bethlehem. But in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, they even make the same mistakes in the English Bible that they did in Isaiah 2. So now it shall come to pass in the latter days. It doesn't say latter days. It's the Acheritayamin. It's the end of days. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. 
and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the Torah shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 64, up to verse 3. Verse 3 says, When you did awesome things, for which we did not look, you came down. The mountain shook at your presence. Let's go back to Isaiah 28, verse 5, which describes this shaking in more detail. Isaiah 28, 5. In that day, what day? day the, Lord, the Lord of hosts, that's our Messiah Yeshua, will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. I want to look more at the shaking. So go back to chapter 24. Verse 19. Isaiah 24, 19. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. His transgression shall be heavy upon it. It will fall and not rise again. In Ezekiel 38, God describes how extensive these earthquakes will be in the tribulation period. Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel. Who is Gog? Gog is the leader of a coalition of nations including Russia, Iran, and Turkey, among others. When, before the last few years, has there ever been a treaty like this between Russia, Iran, and Turkey? The answer is there never has been. And where are they stationed together? But in Syria, on the other side of the Golan, demanding that Israel give the Golan to Syria. You think Israel's going to do that? No. So where does the battle of Gog and Magog take place? On the Golan. At that time, when the Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, it actually should read, my Lord, the Lord, then my fury will show in my face. The word fury, does that mean a little unhappy? No, it means really angry. There's a question from Go to Meatland that says, which of the 70 nations is the United States associated with? The answer is the United States is a melting pot from people of many of the different nations. So we're a hodgepodge. Yeah, hodgepodge. Technical legal term. Okay. Anyway, verse 19, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day, what day? Day of the Lord, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. 
So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creepy things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. All men who are on the face of the earth. What kind of an earthquake does that take to shake everyone around the world? Do you realize on Friday morning here in Georgia we had a 2.5 earthquake? Did any of you even feel it? What about an earthquake that takes place on the Golan that you feel in Atlanta, Georgia? That's the earth reeling to and fro like a drunkard. It says, the mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Well, why does God do this? Verse 23, thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. When this happens, the world's going to recognize that there truly is a God. And he's not happy. Back to Isaiah chapter 64. Verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Notice that word acts is imperfect. That is, it's continuing into the future. It is not completed. And the one who waits for him, that word means who longs for him. There's a special crown for those who anticipate Messiah's coming, who look forward to it, who loves Messiah's return. Hmm. Remember, this is the section of Isaiah where all those idols are piled up in a pile. And God is once more saying, look at the pile. What have they done? Nothing. You have to carry them. In fact, remember how God mocks the people saying, you cut down a tree in the forest. You use half of it to burn to make your dinner. And then you worship the other half. <laughs> He's saying, come on, people. Come on. Verse 5. You meet him. Oh, hang on for a second. <laughs> Just a second here. I want to include a few more cross-references. Yep, in Isaiah 64. I want to add some more for verse 3 as it leads into verse 4. I want to take a look at that word fury. 
I mentioned it, but I didn't give you the references. Shame on me. Go to Numbers 2511. Numbers 2511. That word fury from verse 3 gets translated other ways in other verses. So I want you to see those verses to see the full range of what this word fury carries. In Numbers 25, 11 says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath. That's the same word that is translated fury in Isaiah 64, verse 3 from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. So when he says has turned back to my wrath, what happened? Balaam wanted Balak's money. Balak wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel and God said no. What I've blessed you cannot curse. But Balaam wanted that money so much. He brought the pagan women for sexual immoral purposes and sacrifices to their pagan gods and some of the children of Israel participated in the sacrifices and the immorality and God sent a what? A plague amongst the people. That plague was an illustration of God's wrath, of God's fury being unleashed. In Deuteronomy 9 is translated yet another way but that helps us understand what it means. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. It's the same word in Hebrew again. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. Which word there is the same word translated fury in Isaiah 64, 3? Hot displeasure. Hot displeasure. Displeasure is bad. Hot displeasure is really bad. Yes, Melanie. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes. I'm looking at a footnote. Well, yeah, okay. We were, okay. So sorry. You're absolutely right. Mm. I know. <laughs> okay. Let me sort my notes back out. Okay. That means we have more cross-references. All right, here we go. 
Back on track. Correct side of the page. Let's start with Psalm 18. Psalm 18. It's the Psalm of David after God delivers him from his enemy Saul. And let's start in verse 7. It's more text to explain the shaking of the earth, the earthquakes, the reeling to and fro like a drunkard, etc. Starting in verse 7, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. So has God done this before where he's come down physically to the earth? The earth has shaken, the mountains caught fire. Can you give me an example? Exodus chapter 19. Very good. Now back to where we're supposed to be. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Let's go to Mark chapter 12. Verse 32. The New Testament and the Old Testament agree in all respects. So we just read in Isaiah 64 that there is but one God. In Mark chapter 12, verse 32 says, so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, rabbi, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Now let's look in the Old Testament, Exodus 23. What's that? Exodus what? 23. Exodus 23, 13. I particularly like this one. And in all that I said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. What does the majority of the church today call the Feast of Unleavened Bread? 
Easter. Why do you think God just said, do not make mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth? Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4. Verse 35 and verse 39. First, verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Then in verse 39 it reiterates, Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Then the next thing it says is, You shall therefore... What does therefore mean? Because of this. Because there's only one God. Keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today. Because what does Romans chapter 6 verse 16 tell us? Romans chapter 6 verse 16. The one you obey is what? Romans 6.16 Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey. Whether it's sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So when you obey the commandments of God, what are you saying? That he is God. God is my God. There is one God. And when you obey commandments from, oh, I don't know, let's say the Pope in the 4th century then you're saying he's my God, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So who said keep the Sabbath day? God. Who at the Council of Laodicea in Canon 29 said, don't you dare keep the Sabbath, keep Sunday instead? That was the Pope. Who said keep the Passover? That was God. Who in the 4th century of the Council of Nicaea said, don't you dare keep Passover, you keep Easter instead? Yeah, that was the Pope. We could keep going. But you see what the Bible's trying to tell us? Whom do you obey? That's the one that you serve. First Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8. Verses 59 and 60. First Kings chapter 8, verses 59 and 60. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, <clears throat> that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require, and that all the peoples of the earth, who is that? Everybody may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. What is the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If there's only one God, 
then who's he the God of? Everybody, all peoples. Isaiah 44. Isaiah takes great pains to explain that there is only one God. Isaiah 44 verse 6 tells us exactly who God is. Thus says the Lord. See how the word Lord is spelled? <clears throat> That's the tetragrammaton. Those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav -Heh, which we call Hashem or Adonai. The king of Israel. The king of Israel. Who's going to rule over Israel? Messiah Yeshua. Hmm. <clears throat> Otherwise known in the New Testament as the Lord Yeshua. And his redeemer. The word redeemer is a goel. To be a redeemer you must be a kinsman. You must be a flesh and blood relative. God in heaven is his spirit. He's not a flesh and blood relative of anyone. That's why he had to take on a body of flesh and blood. To be our kinsman. So that he could be our redeemer. And then the Lord of hosts. Boy we know who that is. That's our Messiah Yeshua. And in Zechariah 14, 16. All the world's going to know it. It says I am the first and I am the last. Which is quoted by our Messiah himself. In Revelation 22 verse 13. It says besides me there is no God. How many times have I had people tell me. The Bible never says Yeshua is God. Yes, it does. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting. That's a poetic way of saying what? All people, everybody. That there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Same chapter, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Same chapter, verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Meaning, who has prophesied the end from the beginning? Who in Genesis 3.15 promised the coming of Messiah? God did. Who has told it from that time, meaning God has never stopped sending forth prophets into this world. It says, Have not I the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Look to me and be saved. Who? All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 46, 9. Just two more references here and then I'll go on. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Last cross-reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two. Verses six to nine. Verses six to nine. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor has I heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God prepared for whom? For those who love him. How do we demonstrate our love for God? Through our obedience. Give me a verse to support that. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Sure. Back to Isaiah, chapter 64. Up to verse 5 now. They translated it a little bit strange. It begins, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. The word in Hebrew that's translated meet means to make intercession for. So God makes intercession for him who rejoices and does righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry for we have sinned in these ways we continue and we need to be saved. What's Isaiah saying here? That if we are walking in sin, walking in lawlessness, what do we need to do? We need to repent. When it says in verse 5, who remembers you in your ways, let's look at Psalm chapter 15 to see what God means by your ways. I'm going to have to have another t-shirt made. <laughs> Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill? This is talking about in the Messianic kingdom. Who gets to be part of the kingdom, David asks. The answer, he who walks uprightly 
and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Is David saying that we are saved by works? No. He's saying that if we love the Lord with all our heart, then this is the way we will walk in the way of the Lord. We will walk uprightly. We will work righteousness. We will turn away from lawlessness. We will reject it because of our love for God. When it said we need to be saved, let's go to Psalm 19. Another Psalm of David, who is not only king but also a prophet, as we well know. Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. To look at, we need to be saved. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. This is the psalm that lets us know that God reveals himself to everybody in the world. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. What's the bridegroom a reference to? Messiah coming out of the bridal chambers in heaven for the return of the Lord to establish the kingdom. And rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. That word is tamim. It means without spot or blemish. Converting the soul is not right. That word converting should read restoring. Restoring the soul. When we return to the Lord, we repent, we come back to God in faith and love. Then the Torah gets written upon our hearts and minds. That's what the new covenant's all about. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Now somebody say... Oops, let me see. Maybe somebody's saying it out here. I got three red numbers. Okay, they didn't say it. Wayne, this is Old Testament. Have you ever sung that? Have I ever what? Sung that as a song. Sung that as a song? Yes. Not that I know of. I have. You have? Yes. Cool. Ever since I was a new babe in Christ. Good. Psalm 89, 34. If you've never read this psalm, read it. Put it on a t-shirt. 
Psalm 89, 34. Whenever somebody says, but Wayne, that's Old Testament. The commandments have been done away with. They don't apply anymore. What does Psalm 89, 34 say? My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. If God utters it, he will never change it. Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. But Wayne, that's still old covenant. Okay, all right. Hang on. Go to Matthew 4. Let's look at Messiah's own words. Matthew 4.4. 4. When Satan tempts Messiah, the first thing he does is quote from Deuteronomy. Verse 4, but he, that is Messiah, Yeshua, answered and said, it is written. Where it's written is Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So in Messiah's own words here, which words of God no longer apply? They all apply. In English, you will find the phrase, the Ten Commandments in our Bible, but in the Hebrew, you don't see the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Words. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, Wayne, that's New Testament, but that was before Messiah was crucified. They didn't go away till he was crucified. Okay. Go to 2 Timothy. That's long after he was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Written by the Apostle Paul, whom I was always taught, told us the commandments are gone. Let's see what he says. How many times did Messiah say, you've heard it said? But then he'd say, but I tell you it's written. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. If any of you think that Timothy from childhood had the 1611 King James Version of the Bible, we need to have a talk after we're done here. <laughs> what he had was the Tanakh, right? What we call the Old Testament. It says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Messiah Yeshua. But then verse 16 should just jump off the page. All scripture, or the Greek is better read, every scripture is given by inspiration of God does not carry the meaning. Theonuptos means God breathed. So every scripture God breathed out of his mouth is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yes, ma'am. Question. Um, Timothy. I'll just use Timothy here. Uh, how much of the scriptures was actually readily available to them at the time? I at the time what, Paul writes here to Timothy, the answer is the Old Testament. They had it all? I mean, I thought it was just bits and pieces. No, they had the whole Old Testament. They didn't have the whole New Testament. They had the whole Old Old Testament. It was complete 400 years before Messiah was born. Okay, so how did they get it? Did they go to the 
synagogue? Was it written like we've got it, or did they have to go to the synagogue and hear it read today? You would have to know Timothy's background to know that for sure. And how about any of them? I mean, so how did they actually didn't have it like we have it right now in our hands? So who possessed the copies of the scrolls that it was written on? Too broad a question. Every synagogue had a copy. The priests all had a copy. Timothy probably did because he was taught by Paul, who was a Pharisee. Okay. When we get to heaven, let's ask him. I will. Okay. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> and somebody might say, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, but that's just Paul. Yeah. So go to Revelation 22. The last book, the last chapter. Revelation, Revelation 22. Verses 12 to 14. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. The word work there is the same word as keeping of the commandments. I'm the Aleph and the Tav, because the original is Hebrew, not Greek. The beginning and the end, the first and the last, which is a quote from Isaiah 41.4, which is about God. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. My Baptist commentary says, boy, that's wrong. No, it's not wrong. The Bible is correct and is consistent from beginning to end. If you love the Lord, you will obey the commandments. Now let's just for fun take a little look back at Psalm 51. <sighs> Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is also written by David. And let's read 12 and 13 together. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted or restored to you. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm, meaning every eight verses starts with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet, starting with Aleph and going through to Tav. And the entire psalm is about how blessed it is to follow the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Psalm 119, let's start with verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. What does that verse mean? Will I just give a fleeting glance at the scriptures? Is that what it means to meditate and contemplate? It means to study, to internalize it, to understand it, to want it, to make it important to me. In verse 1 of Psalm 119, 
The first word says blessed, but it's not. Because the first word starts with an olive and blessed is with a bait. It's happy. Happy are the undefiled. That word undefiled is that same Hebrew word tamim we discussed a few minutes ago, which means without spot or blemish. So happy are those without spot or blemish in the way who walk in the Torah of the Lord. It's talking about judgment day. When we stand before the Lord in judgment one day, how happy will we be if we have walked uprightly in the Torah of God? Why? Is, is the Lord going to stand and go, why would you do that? Didn't you ever read Paul? Says your reward is based on your work. Where does it say that? We just read that, didn't we? In Revelation 22. Ah, would you like to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or turn to Matthew chapter 7 and see the alternative. What if you chose instead to walk in lawlessness? Not going to like what you hear come judgment day. Matthew chapter 7. What color are the words? They're red. Verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That verse means it's not that you call me Lord. It's that you treat me as Lord. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness, Torahlessness, sin. Let's go to Haggai, because we don't get to go to Haggai very often. In Hebrew, it's Haggai. Chag is festival, and the A-I ending is my plural. So it means my festivals. And it relates the return of the Lord to the festivals of Leviticus chapter 23. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Did God have a mean old English teacher that gave him a thousand page book to write? No. What is the first day of the sixth month? It's the first day of Teshuvah, that 40 day period of repentance that goes from Elul 1 to the day of atonement. Ah. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, What's the difference between thus says and thus speaks? Yes, yeah, says is nice and gentle. Speaks is with great emotion. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, the word saying means what follows is a quote. This people says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Hmm. Does the Lord agree with their assessment? No. Should we be building a temple in Jerusalem today? We most certainly should. One of the most exciting news articles I caught in the last week is according to the 
rabbis in the know in Israel, there are now three perfectly red heifers of proper age to be slaughtered this fall. Hmm. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came, to, came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. How many times have we just read the Lord of hosts in this prophecy? This is at least the second. When you see that phrase, the Lord of hosts, or in Hebrew, Adonai Zavaot, what do we mean? What does it show us? It's an end times prophecy. He's speaking not just to Joshua and Zerubbabel. He's speaking to us today. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. Does that describe today? Is there starting to be a food shortage? Yeah. You drink but you're not filled with drink. You close yourselves but no one is warm. What's happening to the price of heating oil and fuel, etc.? He earns wages. Earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Talking about inflation so bad that money gets devalued. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there's number three, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. Be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. How long has Jerusalem been back in Jewish hands? Since 1967. Since then, Israel's been making preparations to rebuild the temple. But that's all just preparations. We need to get it going. Actually, all they have to do is lay the cornerstone and put up the altar and sacrifices can commit, yes. commence. The rest of it is considered decoration. I first saw the cornerstone in 1992. It's been ready for a long time. The altar's been ready. But I digress. Let's go back to Isaiah 64. Make sure I stay in 64 and, and, and you know. Okay. Verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. Oh, that's not good. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. He's talking about the need for repentance, the need to turn back to God, the need to be saved. But that word unclean there is the Hebrew word tameh, you're familiar with that word. It's Hebrew word 2931. Let's look back at some of the places it's used to see what he means. We are unclean. Go to Leviticus chapter 5. What are some of the ways we get to be unclean? Leviticus 5 2. Or if person touches any unclean thing, whether it's the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock 
or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. That means we don't have to do it intentionally. But how does the world treat unclean things today? What's that? Eat them, they're yummy, they're delicious. No, 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 no. But that's the way the world reacts. Everybody remember the show, The Nanny? Yes. How she was giggling when she took her ham sandwich into the synagogue for service. Ha, ha, ha. Ooh, what does the scripture say? Let's go to Leviticus chapter 7. It says, don't be eating that ham sandwich when the Lord comes. We'll get to that. That's Isaiah, yeah. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 19. The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. So even if you've got a nice steak and somebody grills it next to a pork chop, ugh, can't eat the steak now because it's been made unclean. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. Verse 21, moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or any abominable unclean thing, and who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. That's serious. Are there any other unclean things other than the pork that they're referring to in that scripture? Absolutely. Leviticus chapter 11 shows all of the animals that are unclean, but there's other kinds of uncleanness like um, vomit, diarrhea, the blood of a woman's cycle. Those things are also unclean. Dead bodies. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, if, if you have a sick baby and the baby's vomiting and you're cleaning up the vomit, then you would not go into the temple until you went through the cleansing rituals. Because if you do and you eat from the, un the clean sacrifices and things like that, then you're cut off from the people. Since there is no temple, you're not going to be eating any of the clean things from the sacrifices. Yeah, I would. But there's not as much danger of something like that since there is no temple at the moment. I mean, won't we be When, when Messiah returns in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says he's going to sprinkle us with the waters of the ashes of the red heifer to purify and cleanse. So that so, would be the ultimate cleansing for without Yeah, except there will be a temple when he returns. Right? Yeah, because it's not something we can 
how do I put it better? I can't hear y'all. I know, I know. Let me move over a little closer to the microphone. If we eat unclean foods, we are going to make ourselves abominable to the Lord. But things like cleaning up the baby's vomit, the best you can do is bathe and be unclean until evening. Does that mean that we shouldn't be fellowshipping? No, it does not mean that. Okay. Yeah. Leviticus 10.10. Leviticus 10.10. The, the children of Israel were specifically told that the priests must, as it says in verse 10, distinguish between the holy and the unholy and between the unclean and the clean. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So the priest's responsibility was to make sure people knew the clean from the unclean the holy from the unholy, and how to rightly divide it. What we're going to find is the priests fell down in that duty. They stopped teaching the people, which caused the people to go off into sin, and it brought God's judgment down. So Ezekiel 44 tells us that when Messiah returns, the priests are going to fulfill that duty. And they are going to, throughout the Messianic Kingdom, make sure everybody understands what's clean and unclean, what's holy and unholy, and what the rules are, how the cleansings go, all that. That's Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 23. Messiah returns in chapter 43. Verse 23 says, And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws, that's the Torah, and my statutes, the chukot, in all my appointed meetings, that's Leviticus chapter 23, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. Yes? We went to Ezekiel 44. I'm sorry, thank you. No worry. Sorry, sometimes I transition too quickly. I've got a number one out here. In the New Testament, what is the difference between, between unclean spirits and being unclean? The New Testament refers to unclean spirits as spirits of demons. And they caused people to do all kinds of horrible things contrary to the laws of God. And being unclean refers to people. It could be that you have an unclean spirit, but it doesn't have to be that. You could eat something unclean like the shrimps, lobsters, pork chops, etc. A woman is unclean for a certain period after having a child. It's different for a male child than a female child. Those kind of things. So let's go to 2 Corinthians because it talks specifically about this topic. Which admittedly is not one of my favorite topics, but if it's in the Bible, we got to study it. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 16 all the way through chapter 7, verse 1. Not as many verses as it sounds. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them, walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If your body is the temple of the living God, how do you know that it is? Should you put anything into your body that you would not take into the temple on earth? Would you take a pork chop into the temple on earth? Shrimp? Lobster? How about tilapia? Yes, tilapia is good. It's called in Israel St. Peter's fish. So Paul says your body is the temple of the living God. Verse 17 says, therefore, because God dwells in you, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord, do not touch what is unclean. Do not put in your body what you would not take into the temple of God. Can you sacrifice a clean animal to God? A clean animal, yes. Can you sacrifice any unclean animal to God? The answer is no. What's that? Yeah, a donkey, a newborn donkey, you have to break its neck if you don't want to redeem it, but you can't sacrifice it to God. So you don't put in your body what you would not take to the temple of God and put on the altar. And I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because this is true. Having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Hmm. Let's go back to Isaiah 52.11. Yes, sir? Um? I heard um, Ben Shapiro say that he uh, feels good about himself as a Jew because he keeps all 300 and something laws and uh, that's his claim to fame. So how do we separate ourselves as Christians um, following Messiah, Jesus Christ, um, and not get caught up with all the 300 and something laws like Ben Shapiro has quoted? I didn't understand the question. Okay, so you you're saying as person. believers, which of the laws huh? should we follow? Is that what you're saying? Um, I, you broke up, but I'll just repeat it. As a Jewish person who prides themselves on following all these laws, how do we as Christians, um, still in the covenant, but Jesus has freed us from a certain amount of them, how do we differentiate with people when we speak to them? So again, your hypothetical question here is, Messiah freed us from some of the laws, so how do we distinguish between the ones that still apply and those that don't apply? Yeah. The answer is they all still apply. He didn't free us from any of them. But we distinguish that. Well, he has to have, because we don't do them all. 
No, your, your presumption is incorrect. Remember, Messiah said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. None of the commandments have been abolished. Are you talking about um, the Ten Commandments? Are you talking about 365, whatever? I'm talking about all of the commandments. Every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Well, I, th I think there's something wrong here because we couldn't possibly follow commandments that are not applying to us. Like I've said before, we don't go out and dig a hole and use that as our bathroom. So there's got to be certain things that were meant for the Israelites, the Hebrews, that doesn't apply to us. There are some that apply only while the temple is standing and the temple is not standing. There's some some apply only to Levites, some only to priests, some only to women. But that doesn't mean any of the commandments have been abolished. I think I'll just let her think on the question for a while. And let's go back to chapter 64. To verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing. He's talking about those that are unsaved, walking in sin. They've rebelled against God. They've turned to pagan idolatry. They've turned to unclean things. They're participating in idolatrous sacrifices of pigs, etc. While asking God to bless them. And it doesn't work that way. Um... In verse 6, you see the word, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. I'm sorry? In verse 6. Isaiah 64, verse 6. So we went back to the verse that we were talking about. And I want to look at that word, iniquity, and how it's translated in other parts of the scripture. So let's go back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 16. This is the first place you will see the word iniquity. Iniquity means the same as lawlessness. And in verse 16 it says but in the fourth generation that is the four generations were Levi Kohat etc down to Moses Levi Kohat Amram and Moses in the fourth generation they that is the descendants of Abraham will return here which is the land of Canaan for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete the word iniquity means lawlessness, breaking the commandments of God. Were the Amorites Israelites? Answers no. Were they Semitic peoples? No, they descend from Ham. An entirely different line. So there are people today, perhaps like we were just talking about, that think that the commandments don't apply except to Israel. If that were the case, what iniquity 
do the Amorites have? The Amorites can only be walking in lawlessness if the law applies. And that's the point I wanted to make here is it's always been the case that all of God's commandments apply to not just Israel, but to all people. That's where we're going next. Go to Sodom and Gomorrah. I understand what that caller was asking because at times, I mean, I get almost overtaken by how much am I missing, what do I not know. Um, yep. Everything that we need to follow is in Deuteronomy. That's why Moses packed it all into the one book. So you find commandments from Genesis through Deuteronomy. But everything in Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is summarized in Deuteronomy. Are we distinguished as Christians because we believe in God and we make an attempt to follow the laws? That's our distinguish. That's what distinguishes us. Yeah, we do it out of love. But her question was, which commandments do I not have to follow? And her assumption is that Messiah abolished some of the commandments. But it's simply not so. Hi, Wayne. Yes, Bill? Uh, okay, along this line, you know, I'm sitting out here on the porch where I can get a good signal. And uh, every now and then a fly or some other bug or something will come and, and land on me. How does that, how do I uh, take that in respect to what the teachings, the instructions tell me that not to touch a creeping thing or, you know, stuff like that. Is how, how do I how do I address that in a righteous way, please? Thank you. Yeah. If that fly had landed in your glass of tea, then you pour out the glass of tea. You don't drink it, it's unclean. Mm -hmm. But if it's landed on your body there's nothing you could do about that, but you're now unclean until evening. You would not be able to go into the temple and participate in temple sacrifices until you went through the cleansing ritual. Fortunately, Israel's a desert, and you don't have a big problem with the flies. <laughs> but okay. you're, but well, I appreciate that. That gives me you know, food for thought. And, and also, maybe, maybe I would consider that in my own life and my spiritual outlook on things is to, you know, uh, where scriptures say that we need to walk circumspectly looking around us, uh, that we, when we see un, unclean activities going on, unrighteous activities, that we would avoid them so as not to be contaminated or defiled by those unrighteous activities that are so prevalent today. Very good. Yep. Very good. Thank you. Yep. Let's go on to First Samuel. Let's go on to First Samuel. First Samuel. Chapter 15. 
Samuel is rebuking Saul. He says in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So when you are stubborn and you refuse to follow God's ways, you will not follow God's commandments. He says it's as bad to him as iniquity and idolatry. And because Samuel is speaking to Saul and Saul has refused to bow his his heart before the Lord, Samuel says, you will not be king anymore. And that's when Saul lost the right to have his son Jonathan reign on the throne after him. He committed a greater sin later that cost him his very life. Do you remember what that was? Went to the witch at Endor to have her conjure up the soul of Samuel. Does that sound familiar? The witch of Endor? Think back to Bewitched. What was the mother-in-law's name? Endora? Oh, the witches are not bad. They're nice people. They're good godly people. They celebrate Christmas. Okay. Enough said. 2 Samuel 22. You know what? Let's just go on back to Isaiah. Time is getting away from me. Yes, but. (laughs) Back to Isaiah chapter 64. Verse 7. Had we continued in Genesis, you would have seen Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed for what? For iniquity. Iniquity is lawlessness, failing to follow God's commandments. God would not have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah if the commandments did not apply to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because what do we learn in the New Testament? Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Because sin is lawlessness. Give me a verse. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, let's take that Ibex trail for a minute. Go to 1 John The reason I bring this up so often is growing up as I did, I knew sin was bad, I just didn't know what it was. Anytime I asked what is sin, the pastor's answer was, it's missing the mark. Not being an archer, it didn't mean anything to me. Never in church did they ever say what sin was. Maybe because they don't know, I don't know. But the Bible defines it right here. Verse 4. 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. That's its definition. Lawlessness, anomia in Greek. That is that which is contrary to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. 
If God said thou shalt not do it and you do it, that's sin. That's what sin is. In verse 10 of the same chapter, 1 John 3.10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness, in other words, what do they practice? Lawlessness. Is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So how do you know the children of God from the children of the devil? Do they walk in sin or do they walk in righteousness? Okay. Now back to comment on Isaiah 64 verse 7. Which says, And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Who calls on your name. Go to Acts 2.21. Does that mean to say, Lord, Lord? No, we just read in Matthew chapter 7. That's not what it means. Unfortunately, there are people out there who think it is. If I walk around and say Jesus on occasionally, that makes me saved. That's not what the Bible says. Go to Acts 2.21. And it shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That gives me an extra incentive to understand what does that mean. Like we said in Matthew 7, it's not just calling Lord, Lord. So let's go to Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. Acts 22, verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Does it have to do with repentance? It does. Does it have to do with being saved through faith? It does. Let's go to Romans 10.13. Let's start even earlier in Romans 10. I want to start in verse 9. In two weeks or so, we should be at Romans 10, verse 9. What you're going to find is what the Greek says is a little bit different from the way the English conveys it. Verse 9 says, That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Greek actually says that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord is Yeshua. That makes a big difference. That makes a big difference. It makes it look here, the Lord Yeshua, like Lord is an adjective. It's not, it's a noun. It's the name, it's the tetragrammaton. The Lord is Yeshua. So when you're calling on the name of the Lord, you're acknowledging Yeshua is the Lord from all eternity. 
Verse 13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that relates back to verse 11. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So to call on means to believe in, to acknowledge that Yeshua is the Lord. The same Lord we've been reading about from Genesis through Malachi. Go to 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. Where was Corinth? Greece. Greece, the heart of the wicked Grecian Empire. To those who are sanctified in Messiah Yeshua. What's it mean to be sanctified? What's that? Cleansed. To be cleansed, to have the sins taken away. Called to be saints. That's the Greek word hagios. Same word as holy. With all who in every place call on the name of Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So those who are sanctified, those who have been made holy, have been washed clean with the shed blood of the Lamb, filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk in newness of life. If you're born Gentile and you get saved, do you continue to live as the Gentiles? Once you come to the knowledge, no. Yeah, go to Ephesians 4. What does the Bible say? Verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Well then, how does one walk? Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which goes corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. God bless you. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. Paul says put away lawlessness. Walk in true righteousness in holiness. So when you're walking in true righteousness, you're essentially calling on the name of the Lord because you're demonstrating your belief in him? Yes, ma'am. Yep. Matthew 15. One last before we go back to Isaiah. I grew up being told that the Pharisees were the most godly of people. That they observed every commandment in God's Torah down to the minutiae. I was really surprised when I read the Bible to find out that wasn't true at all. What is my last word you just said? Minutia, yeah, the smallest, tiniest bit. The tiniest, okay. In Matthew 15, just verses 7 through 9. Messiah says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips. They call him Lord, Lord. But their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. 
If you're calling on the name of the Lord, are you walking in the doctrines and the commandments of men? No. You're walking in the commandments of God. Back to Isaiah 64. We're up to verse 8. But now, O Lord. Oh, what's that? Um, I was just thinking about this issue of clean and unclean, and does it apply to our clothing as well as to our bodies? For example, when the woman with the issue of blood touched the tallit of Yeshua, that didn't make him unclean. Where is the, kind of where is the separation? There isn't, a, the leper, there isn't any verse in the scripture that would answer your question. I would just have to make something up. I'm just trying to be honest. No, no, I, I, yeah. I'm okay with an honest answer. Yeah. It's just I can sense amongst the listeners a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we wanna we wanna be clean. We wanna do what we what we know is right, what we believe is right, but but there also seems to be a lot of circumstances that I'm not quite sure how to handle. I'm not quite sure what's the right thing to do given there seems to be Ambiguity is not the right word, but but it, in everyday life, it seems like that, that we can't avoid not doing things wrong. Uh, so so that's, that's what I'm struggling yep. with. Yep, I understand, Brad. There is a lot that the scripture does not tell us. That we need to wait for Messiah to come to gain a much better understanding and knowledge. When the woman with the issue of blood came up and touched the hem of Messiah's robe, we all know it's not the hem, it's the zitzit. And he says, woman, your faith has made you whole. What faith is he talking about? She's just grabbed the zitzit. Why does she do that? Let's go to Malachi 4, and you'll see why he says your faith has made you whole. Malachi 4, verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The Son of Righteousness there refers to Messiah. Is Messiah a bird? No. The word should not be translated as wings. That's one of the meanings. The, the word is kanaf, and it means the corner. The corner of the tallit is where the zitzit are tied. So when she grabs the zitzit at the corner of his garment, she's confessing her faith that he is the Messiah, the promised one. And he says, woman, your faith has made you whole. Did her touching the zitzit make him unclean? The scripture doesn't say whether it did or didn't. We would have to know. Did he then go to the mikvah? and go through the cleansing process, we simply don't know. But she didn't touch him. She didn't touch him, right. So his question was, Brad's question was, did touching it make him unclean or didn't it? And the scripture just does not tell us. Um, if I'm walking down the street and a bug lands on my shirt, do I consider myself unclean? No. <clears throat> if I 
breathing out my nose. Yeah, I'm unclean. Yeah. I'm sure that's never happened to you guys. Yes? But under the, uh, the law about, you know, the, the issue of blood, like uh, we know that, you know, sitting where a woman was on her monthly yes. unclean, but it's like unclean until sundown or something like that. So, I mean, it's not like you're doomed. It's that you are in a state of uncleanness until sundown or... Yes, some we are. certain period of time, so. Yeah, we all understand that. Yeah, okay. Yep, some of the notes out here, Cassandra says, is it unclean to touch the dead body of a deceased loved one? The answer is yes. Should that be avoided? No. You're just going to be unclean until evening. Bob and Nancy say surgeons and emergency workers would constantly be unclean. That's going to be true. Yes, they would have to go through the... Yeah. It is necessary. She didn't ask, is it to be avoided? No, it's just if they wanted to go now into the temple and participate in the sacrifices, they would have to go through the cleansing process first. Unclean does not necessarily mean sin. It depends on how one gets unclean and then what one does while unclean. And they added midwives, obstetricians, etc. Yep, if you're going to contact human blood, you're going to be unclean at the moment. Okay. Yep, that's what defiles one. Right. God said, don't do it. You say, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. That's what defiles. But if you find out something is unclean and you like, do the necessary things to become clean, then that's not sinful. Correct. That's just a part of Woman having a baby and becoming unclean, that's not sin. But if she fails to go But if she goes into the temple then and eats from the sacrifices, that's sin. She fails to go through the cleansing and all the things that are prescribed right. by God. Exactly. Okay. We're going to see if Mulaney was looking to say, what did he say? <laughs> okay. All right. Verse 8. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Let's look at Isaiah 29, 16. We literally are clay. We were made from the dust of the ground. Isaiah 29, 16. What should our attitude then be toward the potter? It says, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Or shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? So that's right, we should be reverent to the potter. We should be grateful to the potter for what he's done for us. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. I think it's chapter 18, verse 6. Let's see.
Jeremiah 18.6. There are some questions that we simply will hate, will have to wait to be answered until we get to heaven. And then we have seven years where we you can see, ask. Yes, sir. Uh, in, in answer to that question about was Messiah made unclean when she touched the hem of his garment, I would say no because the scripture says he who knew no sin. So, uh, and if uncleanness is sin. Uncleanness is not necessarily sin. Okay. So thank you. Okay. So, okay. Wayne, um, listening to everything, I'm going to say that I, I think I'm starting to understand something here. Okay. Unclean is almost like you got bacteria on your hands and you need to wash your hands. And when a doctor touches a cadaver and goes over and delivers a baby and doesn't wash his hands, which we know happened for hundreds of years, women went to the hospital and they died or their babies died because they were not washing their hands and so it, it was unclean so when you look at all the things that god is saying it's almost like he's saying hey listen guys i know there's bacteria there this is filthy clean clean yourselves up okay yep but i don't understand the next but you don't understand i lost the last part but you don't understand what i don't understand until nightfall i don't understand that part okay so we're in Jeremiah 18, verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. What's the Lord saying? I brought you in this world. I can take you out. I'm sovereign. I can do what I want. Are there limits to what God can do? There are limits to what God can do. God cannot lie. That is true. God cannot lie. I can't think of anything else. But God cannot lie. This is true. Go to Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? It's just another of those verses that says, we don't tell God what to do. God is sovereign. He created us. He can do with us as he chooses. And he will do with us as he said he would do. We're almost done. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 18. To whom did God make the promise that he would be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters? Was it to everyone, to the whole world? No. Look at verse 17. Therefore come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you. 
So what if we choose and say, no, I'm going to walk in uncleanness. I'm going to eat pigs. Who are you to tell me I can't? That shows the attitude of the heart. Will God say, oh, that's okay. You can be my children anyway. I'll be your father. We'll be a loving family. It does not. One last verse, and then we'll quit for the day. Correct, you can't do what you don't know. Right, at times, this has become almost overwhelming because I don't know. I mean, it used to be as simple as if you believe in the Lord Jesus and confess him as your Savior, you're good to go. But that's not necessarily the truth, you know? (laughs) So it has become uh, awesome. Okay. Yep. Okay, go to Malachi. Chapter 1. And then we'll stop. I know I'm a couple of minutes over. I apologize. If you remind me in two weeks, I will short you a couple of minutes. But in Malachi 1.6, I want you to take these words and think about them next week. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. When we call him Lord, we call him God, and then we break all his commandments. Did we honor him? Did we serve him? Did we demonstrate our love? And the answer to all those is no. So next time we do Isaiah, we'll be in chapter 64, verse 9.